Well, good morning. How are you all this morning? Boy, good morning. How are you all this morning? Good. Glad to hear it. Boy, fall is definitely in the air, isn't it? You walk around in the, just about anywhere you can smell fall in the air. Are you ready for it? Got all the yard work done and stuff like that? You're like me, you're just hoping for two or three more weeks of good weather before uh, the snow comes and covers everything up. Then you don't worry about it for six months. Pastor Eric has been taking us through the book of Genesis, and uh, he is out hunting. I think he was successful, so maybe he's cutting meat this morning, which is a good deal. And uh, he's given me the privilege of uh, continuing on. We're in uh, Genesis, the 28th chapter where we're going to continue in the story of Jacob. And I want to give you just a little bit of background because it's been a couple of weeks since we've been there. So just to sort of set the stage for uh, where we are. The background of this passage is that Jacob has stolen Esau's blessing with the help of his mother. Uh, uh, Isaac sent uh, Esau out to uh, get him some game and uh, some savory food that he enjoyed, and before Esau got back, Jacob snuck in there, and Isaac blessed him. And so Esau plots revenge upon a, uh, upon Jacob, but uh, he's going to wait until uh, Isaac dies. He doesn't want to take Jacob's life prior to that. So um, Rebecca devises a plan to protect Jacob from Esau by uh, sending him away. So that's sort of, that's the background that comes into this. Esau is just ticked because Jacob has stolen uh, the blessing that he should have gotten because he was the firstborn. So uh, Rebecca devises a plan to protect Jacob from Esau by sending him to her brother's brother Laban's house for a while. And when Rebecca sends Jacob off, I would imagine that she, not in her wildest dreams, would have thought that it would be 20 years before Jacob would come back to his household. Rebecca will have died by that time. And she sets a stage for Isaac's, or for, uh, Isaac's involvement by uh, conveying her disgust, if you will, to Isaac about the wives that Esau had. She couldn't come to uh, to. Isaac and tell him, well, Jacob and I put this plan together and he stole Esau's blessing as Isaac knew at that particular juncture. And Isaac or Esau is now trying to kill Jacob, so he wants to, I need to get him out of here. She devises a plan, an excuse, if you will, to send Jacob away. And the excuse that she uses, she points to Esau's wives. Esau had uh, chosen wives out of the land in which they lived and uh, She just says, I am disgusted by these Canaanite women. She conveys to him a feeling of loathing, abhorrent, sickening dread because she felt that if Jacob remained in that spot, that he would choose the same kind of women. Um, Esau had married two Canaanite or Hittite women that they're from the same uh, tribal group um, who were a source of bitterness to Isaac and Rebekah. What that bitterness is, we're not told. It could have been that they were just cantankerous women and constantly battling with Rebekah. It could have been that they had uh, Rebekah and Isaac saw that uh, they were attempting to draw Esau away from following the true and the living God. 
But regardless of that situation, Rebecca used that as an excuse to send Jacob away to her brother's house so that he could find there a wife. It's interesting um, that Rebecca sends Jacob away to probably marry his cousin. Um, but during this time, the, the covenant family was so small and so uh, interrelated that that was the only way that she could really preserve um, Jacob at this particular point. So that's the background. Jacob is now, now we're in uh, verse or in chapter 28, where it says this. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him and commanded him, Don't marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Padan Aram, to the house of your mother's father, Bethuel. Take a wife for yourself there from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And may God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful. Increase your numbers until you become a community of people. And give you descendants, and give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien, the land God gave Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Padam Aram, to the Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Armenian, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. So Jacob packs his things. And he's about to take a 550-mile journey north to where his mother was from. But before he leaves, he receives from his father the confirmation that through him the covenant blessing will pass. When Jacob and Esau were in their mother's womb, God told Rebekah that there are two peoples within you. And eventually the older will serve the younger, which was unheard of in that culture because the right of what's called primogenitor, the firstborn, was to receive a double blessing of the, uh, the father's inheritance. And it should have been through him that the covenant was established. But according to the sovereign plan of God who told Rebekah what was going to happen prior to the kids being born, Jacob freely despised his birthright despised the privilege of being the firstborn and made the decision freely to sell that birthright for a bowl of soup. And then according to God's sovereign plan as well, Rebecca and Jacob connived together to steal the blessing as they tricked a myopic father into giving, conveying the blessing upon Jacob. But here, Isaac acknowledges in truth that Jacob is to be the recipient of God's blessing. There's no longer any deception. There are no disguises. There's no scheming mother. It's just Isaac and Jacob, and Isaac blesses Jacob. Jacob or Isaac finally at that point enters into the plan that God had for the covenant community. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Padan Aram to take a wife from there. And that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and had gone to Padan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the city of Nebaioth. 
and the daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. I must, I mean, I had always thought reading this passage, and, you know, I haven't spent a ton of time in uh, the book of, or regularly in the book of Genesis, but I had always thought that when Esau heard how abhorrent the Canaanite women were to his family, I thought that he just went out and married another one just to sort of spite them. Um, I thought he was doing the very thing that brought his family grief, but he's doing exactly the opposite here. He doesn't marry a Canaanite woman. He marries an Ishmaelite. Uh, He is trying again to enter into the good graces of his parents. He realizes the, um, the distress that his Canaanite wives had brought to his mother. So he tries to marry again within the covenant, sort of the covenant community. He tries to marry within the, the, the tribe and the family of Abraham because Ishmael was Abraham's son. And he marries into a family while it truly is a recipient of God's blessing. It is a line that has been sent away. Remember the whole uh, Hagar and Ishmael were sent away from Abraham. And just as he tries to marry into the family that's been sent away, he has, in fact, been sent away from the blessings. In this literature, in the literature, Esau would be known as the tragic figure. He is born into the position of privilege and power and ends up on the margins because of the choices that he makes. It doesn't seem like Esau can ever do anything right. And it's interesting as the story continues to unfold, as Pastor Eric will take us in the next couple of chapters, uh, we, see, uh, we see a change and alteration in Esau's character. But down through the history of the nation of Israel, Esau's line and Jacob's line are constantly in conflict with one another. But Esau, at this particular juncture, tries to do something to ingratiate himself again into his family. He doesn't marry a Canaanite. He marries an Ishmaelite. But he's still on the margins. So Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. And when he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. And taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and laid down to sleep. Imagine with me the situation that's sort of contained in this short passage. Jacob, we remember, is not a man of the open country. Jacob wouldn't have gone hunting. Jacob probably would have gone to Barnes & Noble. Uh, I've been listening to a little bit of Mark Driscoll's uh, sermon. He's uh, a teaching pastor at Mars Hill Church in um, Seattle. And it's interesting to see how he characterizes the difference between Jacob and Esau. Esau would drive a Ford F-250. Jacob would drive a Prius. (laughs) Esau would go out hunting. Jacob would go to Barnes & Noble. So Jacob now finds himself on a journey that's 550 miles. That is a trek during that time. He didn't jump in his car and drive. I mean, even if you figure you walked 18 miles a day, it would take him a month to get there. He sets out on a journey. And we're not told whether or not he's accompanied by anyone. We don't know if his father and mother sent a, a group of servants with him or if he just sort of takes out on his own. I, sort of, I do get the feeling that he probably didn't start this trek by himself. But we're not told. So as night came, he stopped and prepared his camp. And for a pillow, he uses a stone. He must have been traveling light. I mean, one of the things I usually pack when I go, even when I go backpacking, is something to put my head on, a pillow. Is the last, I mean, a stone is the last thing I would ever want as a pillow. 
And you have to imagine as Jacob builds his camp at night, not being a man of the country, but of the tents. He hung out with his mom most of the time. That the anxiety level must have been cranked up to 11. He must have been a little bit anxious about the situation that he finds himself as he falls asleep that night. Because behind him is the specter of death in his brother Esau. And before him lies his uncle that he probably had never met. So he had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were descending and ascending and descending upon it. Jacob, seemingly alone in the dark, is visited by God in a dream. This dream that Jacob has is not the result of a hastily prepared and eaten meal, but it is a revelatory dream where God communicates with Jacob, a supernatural event that invades Jacob's rest. Throughout the scriptures, we see that God speaks to his people in this way, both in the Old and in the New Testament. In the second chapter of Acts, we see that as the, in the coming of the Spirit, God inaugurates these kinds of events within the church. God speaks to Jacob in this dream. And what he, sa- what he sees, um, he sees these angels coming and going on the staircase. They aren't engaged in a battle fighting the demonic horde. They are entering our world and returning to theirs. They're doing what God created them to do. And Jacob is allowed to glimpse a reality that's real, that's not seen. Hebrews 1.14 says this about angels. Number one, that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. There is a spiritual realm that you and I um, interact with to a degree, or that interacts with us on a daily basis. There's an unseen world that is, that is parallel to ours that we have no idea what's going on. I remember when in the scriptures, in, uh, when Elijah, Elisha and his servant are surrounded by their enemies, and Elisha pray, and Elisha tells his servants, well, there's more with us than with them. And the servant goes, wait a minute, dude. We're about to get whacked here. It's just you and I. And Elisha prays that the eyes of his servant might be enlightened, might be opened. And he sees the spiritual forces that are arrayed to protect them. There's a spiritual realm that operates in parallel to ours that Jacob gets a glimpse of. And he sees the angels coming and going from heaven, carrying out God's purposes. Angels are spiritual beings that we can't see but are real and exist. They are servants. They are ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation. Their ministry is directed towards God's people. And Jacob is allowed to glimpse this reality as he dreams. But that's not all he sees. In fact, these are probably, the the angelic beings are probably secondary to what he sees next. And there above it stood the Lord. And he said, uh, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. In this dream, and understand that this is a, 
it's not a dream in the sense that we would have the dream that you had last night. This is a revelatory dream where God is communicating to Jacob. He's not imagining it. It is a, an event that is occurring while he's asleep. In this dream, he encounters the presence of the Lord. He stands above the stairway that allows the angels to come and go. God occupies heaven. His position is one of authority and power. And to make sure that God is aware of his identity, God, the Lord declares who he is. He declares that he is the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. There must have been some um, teaching down through the family line that Abraham conveyed to Isaac and Isaac conveys to Jacob. This encounter that each of them had with God. So when God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac, Jacob knew exactly who he was encountering. He knew something of God's majesty and power and authority. It wasn't full-blown. There wasn't a full-blown theology at this time. But he was aware of God's power and authority and the covenant that he had made. And as he had appeared to Abraham and as he had appeared to Isaac, he appears to Jacob. Jacob's about the same age at this particular time that Abraham was when God came to Abraham. And he reiterates the covenant. And here are the declarations that he makes, the essential elements of the covenant that he makes. Number one, he says, the land. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are now lying. At this particular time, Jacob was probably 60 miles from, um, from Beersheba where his parents were. He was in the middle just about of the nation of Israel. And God says, I'm going to give you this land. He promised it to Abraham. He promised it to Isaac. He reaffirms the covenant with Jacob. I'm going to give you this land. And then he says, your descendants. I'm going to give you descendants. At this particular time, how many descendants did Jacob have? None. He wasn't even married yet. And he might have been as old as 70 years old at this particular juncture. It's sort of uncertain exactly how old he is at this point in time. But God promises to Jacob like he promised to Abraham, like he promised to Isaac, that you're going to have descendants. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And he also promises Jacob that his line, his family, is going to be the source of blessing. All the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Jacob must have been scratching his head in his sleep at this particular juncture. How in the world is this going to be? I don't even have a wife. Children are, are thought in the future. How are my descendants, how am I going to be a blessing to the entire world? And God promises his presence where I am with you and watch over you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Do you get any sense as Jacob leaves his mother and father and begins this 550 mile journey to his, to his uncle? Do you get any sense that one of the goals that he has on this trek is to encounter God? There's very little evidence that Jacob had a very broad view of who God was at all. You don't get the sense 
that there was any sort of personal relationship that Jacob had with God. We assume that his father or his grandfather had passed down the ethics of the kingdom. But there is very little evidence that these ethics ever penetrated Jacob. This whole thing, this whole trek is, is uh, sort of foundational that he's got to get out of Dodge because his brother is going to kill him because he deceived and lied to his father. He may have known the ethics of the kingdom, but they had not penetrated. He's running for his life. And the secondary goal is that hoping to find a woman that his parents would approve of. But on this trek, he encounters God. God comes to Jacob. If there was an, what was there in his character? What was there in Jacob's character that made him worthy of this encounter? What could Jacob point to that demonstrated his piety, his godliness, or his faithfulness? What was there in his life that allowed him to say, yes, I've been working and waiting for this my entire life, this dream where I encounter the God of my grandfather and the God of my father. I've been waiting and working for this my whole life. There's nothing. You look at Jacob's life. His very name means one who deceives. This encounter is based solely upon God's grace and not upon his works. Jacob's history has been one of deceit and trickery. God coming to him is based upon the grace of God. And look especially in verse 15, how God interacts with Jacob at this particular point. And notice the pronoun, if you will, where God says, I am with you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back. I will not abandon you. I will do this. I have promised you. God declares an unconditional covenant with Jacob, the deceiver, the tricker, the trickster. God declares his covenant relationship with Jacob based upon his grace, not upon Jacob's works. It is so easy for us, to, as we encounter the Old Testament, to look at the Older Testament through the lens of, of performance, through the lens of, uh, of works, if you will. But I was just struck again as I read through Jacob's uh, life in this, in this chapter, how we've got to force ourselves, I have to force myself, to read through these stories through the lens of grace. There is nothing in Jacob's life or character that lends itself to God going, man, I'm glad I got you. In fact, we would probably look at Jacob's life and go, dude, don't you know God at all? But God encounters him in a dream and makes promises, promises to him, not because of who Jacob is, but because of who God is. that unconditional covenant. Then Jacob, then Jacob awoke from his sleep and thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. There is none, this is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And early in the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. And he called that place Bethel. 
though the city used to be called Luz. As Jacob awakes, he recognizes, I believe, his deadness to spiritual realities. God was there and he wasn't even aware of it. He laid down and he wasn't aware that he was in God's bedroom. And while he might have gone to sleep afraid of the wildness of the place, he awakes afraid because of God's presence. So he takes his pillow and he stands it up. It was, it was a common practice at that time to, to erect standing stones, the stone of a memorializing. He takes, and takes his pillow and stands it up so he will remember where the place is. And he pours oil on it to anoint it, to set it aside, to declare that this is a sacred place. And he calls it Bethel. One of the reasons that we're called Bethel Church, it's not because we're associated with the town of Bethel. It's in Alaska. It's Bethel. Beth Bet is house. El is God. He declares that the place where he slept, as he anoints this pillow, that this is God's place. This is a sacred spot. This is where God comes and dwells. This place is sacred. This is God's house. Not because of the structure, but because of us in it. God's church. This is where God dwells as well. And, God, and Jacob may have also been afraid because he is acutely aware of the circumstances that surrounded his flight. He begins to become, I believe, in the presence of God through the dream. He begins to realize his character flaws, if you will. He lied and deceived his father. He stole from his brother. And the normal reaction in light of that in God's presence is one of fear. Jacob went to sleep afraid of his surroundings, woke up afraid of God. And we're a lot like Jacob in this respect. We don't recognize the uh, spiritual realities that are around us. In Colossians 1.28 it says, For in, speaking of Christ, in him we live and move and have our being. But oftentimes we live life like God is somewhere out there, not here. We are aware of the sacred nature of every aspect of our lives, that we are called to glorify God in all that we do. But we often relegate the spiritual life to this building. This is where spiritual stuff happens. What happens out there is just what happens out there. But in him we live and move and have our being. God dwells within us by his grace and mercy. And when we forget that, we do not live our lives accordingly. We're much like Jacob. We want to say God's here, but he's not out there. When we leave this place, God's presence, in, the, in a real sense, leaves with it because he dwells within us. We are often products of our culture that says what is real is what we can see, touch, feel, and measure. Jacob encounters a reality that's just as real, the presence of God. May we be challenged by that as well. And then Jacob makes a vow and says, If God will be with me, and will watch over me on this journey I am taking, and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's house, and the Lord will be my God. And the stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And all that you give me, I'll give you a tenth. This sort of, I mean, I, I read this, inter, read the encounter, read Jacob's response to it, then I read this. 
And just as it is impossible for a leopard to change its spots, I think it's impossible for Jacob to get out of Jacob's way. In spite of his encounter with God, with the God of his father, seeing in a dream the realities of the spiritual world, he still hedges his bets. He fashions a box, if you will, if you can sort of, if you can take this metaphor with me. He fashions this box that God's got to fit in. God's got to fit in this box if he is going to receive Jacob's allegiance. A portion of that Jacob's box that he puts God in is, is fashioned from what God has told him. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to help you return to this place. I'll watch over you. But Jacob adds his portion as well. He says, well, God, you've got to remember to feed me, and you've got to remember to clothe me. Those are not implied. I don't think they're even implied in the promises that God has just made. He'll watch over him. But Jacob adds some very specific things to it. You've got to feed me, and you've got to clothe me. Jacob's box that he has placed God in is carefully crafted so that God has to meet his needs. His box takes a little bit of the promises that God has made, and then Jacob adds to it. And then he tells the Lord, if you do this, if you do these things for me, then you'll be my God. And then he wraps it with a little bit of bow, a little bit of a bow, and I'll give you 10% of everything you have given me. We often do the same things. We craft a box to put God in. And our box has elements of truth in it. It's part of the scripture, or the scriptures form part of the uh, part of the structure and the form aligns with what God has told us in the scriptures. But oftentimes there are elements of culture, tradition, and human wisdom that is added as well. A writer once noted that in the beginning God created us in his image. And we have been returning the favor ever since. God said that, or Jacob said that the God he would worship would have to feed and clothe him. Today God has to make us healthy, has to make us wealthy, and not bother us too much. God has to give us the perfect job, the perfect spouse, and perfect children and not bother us too much. And if he does, we might show up on Sunday if the NFL, the NCAA, the National Hockey League, NASCAR, the PGA, the LPGA doesn't preempt him. And if our consumption doesn't compel us too much, if the pressures of consumption are not too great, then we'll give him some of our money as well. It is for us a constant battle. It is for me a constant battle to let God be God. It is imperative, and I can't stress that more strongly. It is imperative for us to allow the box in which God dwells, if you can take the metaphor with me, to be built upon the truth of the Scripture. God's self, self, it is God's self-revelation, not tradition, culture, or our human wisdom that defines who God is. And I want to leave you with this challenge, that God is most intimately revealed in Jesus. God is most intimately revealed in Jesus. Colossians 1.15 says that he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn over all creation. 
And prior to his crucifixion, he tells his disciples, anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. Jesus is God come in the flesh who came to make God known to us. When we see Jesus encounter the marginalized of society, that is God coming to those, to the poor, to the needy, to the hungry. When we see Jesus interacting with the outcast of society, like the woman at the well in the fourth chapter of the book of John, that is telling us something about God's heart. As Jesus encounters um, Peter and says, Peter, you're going to be a rock upon and your testimony upon which the church is going to be founded. That shows us something about God. That makes God known to us. When we see Jesus telling Peter, get behind me, Satan, because you don't have in mind the things of God, that tells us something about who God is. As we develop our knowledge and understanding of who God is, may we first look and see who Jesus is. For he reveals God to us. And lastly, as we as we prepare our hearts and think about communion, God's character and nature are most powerfully demonstrated in the cross. We come this morning as God's children, as his family. We come together to celebrate and remember what Christ has done for us. Christ, the incarnate expression of God, and his death upon it reveals God's character and nature to us in the most powerful way. In the cross, we see God's sovereignty. Before the foundation of the world, before the creation was spoken into existence, God had determined the plan by which he would redeem his image bearers. And we see society and culture follow God's plan freely to accomplish that. In the cross, we see God's holiness, his absolute and fierce abhorrence of rebellion and sin. And we see God's love. For in the midst of our rebellion and sin, and his almost, his opposition to it, we see that he provided the means by which we could be restored and reconciled to him. In the cross, we see God's justice. God was not willing Because of his character and nature, God could not say, oh, you sin, no big deal. Ollie, ollie, oxen free. He could not do that. It would be a violation of his very nature. We see his justice in that the punishment that we deserved, the punishment that we earned, fell upon him. Sin was punished. God's justice was served. And it was because we also see his mercy. We did not have to bear it, but he laid upon Christ the sinfulness, the iniquity, and the punishment of us all. And we see also in the cross, we see God's grace. As Jacob encounters God in the dream because of God's grace, we encounter him as his daughters and as his sons, 
because of his grace. There's not one person sitting in this room that can say, I earn this. I earn my standing with you, God. It is always sourced and based in God's grace. Jacob received it. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob all received it. We receive it as well. As God revealed himself in a dream to Jacob, he reveals himself more fully and most powerfully in the cross. As we partake today, as the church of Christ gathered in this place, may you revel in God's grace and his demonstration to us in Christ. May you revel and celebrate the fact that you are God's child. And may you be humbled by the price God was willing to pay for us. Let's pray. Father, you tell us that the Older Testament was written that we might be instructed and that it's profitable for us to interact with it. May we see in Jacob a man flawed, a man characterized by weakness and failure, but a man to whom you came and committed yourself to. May we see ourselves in that story because we are flawed. We are uh, tempted in so many ways to be like him. Yet you, because of your unconditional love and your infinite grace have entered into relationship with us that we might be your children. And you did that through Jesus. Help us, Father, to catch a glimpse and a vision of who you are as we eat and drink. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Some of you have been asked to come and to serve. It's our tradition here that uh, 